Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. In our final programme of 2021, we look back on the key events of the last 12 months and ask what they've meant for the world. It's time for American troops to come home. Kabul is captured everywhere Taliban are seen. They've been going door to door in what we could only call urban warfare. The Army's increased deployability and technological advantage will mean that greater effect can be delivered by fewer people. This is a plan for cuts now with a promise of jam tomorrow. The Suez Canal Transit and the Straits of Malacca, you've got numerous vessels out there, you know, not sure how they're going to react. It's like a floating city to be honest. We're going all around the world and everybody wanted to be dipped in on that. Now cast your mind back. This time last year, Donald Trump was still in the White House. More than 10,000 international troops were still in Afghanistan. And just a handful of people in the world had been vaccinated against COVID. We end 2021 with the armed forces once again on a vaccination drive, this time for booster shots. But amid the ongoing pandemic, there have still been international spats and history-making moments. Here to guide us through the events of the last year and what they mean, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark and Dr Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Defence Think Tank RUSI. Before that, she was Chief of Staff for US General John Allen. And Karen, has the world become more or less safe and stable in 2021? I hate to sound like an academic, but a bit of both. I mean, obviously it's more stable because there is a more stable U.S. president in situ, uh, where Trump was very erratic and uh, we, we know all those challenges, but the world has changed in so many ways that we will talk about uh, on this show. And you can't put all those problems back into the box. Michael, so a bit of both. Michael, how will the history books summarize the world in 2021? Well, it's, it's been another plague year. And I think probably when we look back on it, we'll say, well, this is the year when we actually understood that nature has got to be respected. Both the climate crisis came top of the, came to top of the agenda and the fact that COVID affects absolutely everything. So, of course, there's been all the usual sort of balance of power issues. But really, we'll look back on this as a, a year when we understood that human nature has got to bow down to the forces of nature and public health. In January, the world got a new leader when Joe Biden took office as US president. With the job, he inherited a looming deadline to either withdraw from Afghanistan or rip up Donald Trump's peace deal with the Taliban. The rest of NATO also faced the same decision. There are no easy options. If we stay beyond the 1st of May, we risk more violence, we risk more attacks against our own troops. But if we leave, then we also risk that the gains we have made are lost. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. The Taliban has wasted no time in taking advantage. The Taliban now control two-thirds of Afghanistan's territory, crucially this week. Nine district capitals fell in just five days. They've been going door to door in what we could only call urban warfare, really, because the Taliban, as they have in both Kandahar and Herat as well, have been embedding themselves, if you like, in residential homes. I would never have agreed with what we are now doing. President Biden took this decision, uh, and I'm very critical that NATO countries, including our own, seem to rather meekly have gone along with that decision. We are trapped. Kabul is captured. Every, everywhere Taliban 
are seen. Will I be alive tomorrow? We cannot guarantee that. Many of my uh, colleagues, uh, they are also in a danger, uh, especially the San Interpreter, because we were the people we worked honestly, bravely with British forces. So far, we've brought out uh, just under 300 uh, entitled personnel, British nationals. Looking ahead, I think the demand placed upon us is in the order of 6,000. I was quite nervous, to be fair. Obviously, when you look at the news, it looked quite bad. It runs through your mind, like, what is actually going on? And then, obviously, you've got the fear factor. You know, I didn't know what was going to go on. Although we have entrance visa in hand, we could not reach the US Army to show them our documents. I might not be able leaving here. I will be a victim. Suddenly we heard a huge explosion over there. And then I saw that smoke everywhere. This is absolute madness. And both the British and the American governments are responsible. And I do not understand why they are not taking charge of this. Mr. Speaker, this is what defeat looks like. It's when you no longer have the choice of how to help. This doesn't need to be defeat. But at the moment, damn well feels like it. Of course, for the people of Afghanistan, the story has continued. So let's bring in Kate Clark from the Afghan Analyst Network. Uh, Kate, you were last in Afghanistan in August. So just as the Taliban were returning to power, what are people in Afghanistan telling you about their situation since? Well, it's, I mean, it's, there is peace. There is peace in the country for the first time since the communist coup sparked armed rebellion in 1978, 1979 which is quite an extraordinary thing. There is no armed opposition that holds territory in the country. There's just the Taliban. So both of those things are quite remarkable. There are various problems, though, the most serious of which is that the Taliban were under UN and US sanctions. And when they decided to go for military victory, it was at the risk not only that the government wouldn't fall, but secondarily that all the aid, both military and civilian, that has poured into Afghanistan would be cut off. And the Taliban were warned about this, that there couldn't be both military victory in Kabul and continuing international support. They ignored that. And of course, the aid was switched off. The um, assets that Afghanistan holds abroad were frozen and the sanctions really kicked in. And mm. the result has been economic collapse destitution the country faces famine it's been worse than anyone could have imagined and at the time the taliban took over some had hoped to see a fight back by opponents that seemed to evaporate is that idea history now for now but i don't think you can you can say that that's history typically in afghanistan military opposition takes a while to ferment after 2001 it took probably about five or six years to properly get going and the way that the Taliban are ruling does not augur for a stable country. They've carried out reprisal killings. They've done all the things that really upset not only Afghans, many Afghans, but also the international donors. So things like not allowing girls' schools to stay open, not allowing mm. women to keep working, having an administration that is entirely made up of Taliban, mainly drawn from one ethnic group, all male, of course. Mm. And these things, in Afghanistan, you have to try and have a pluralistic country. It's a very diverse country. If you exclude people, particularly if you're, if you're carrying out reprisal killings, there will be a backlash sooner or later. 
Michael Clark, when Kabul fell, we heard Tom Tugendhat, former soldier, now Conservative MP, saying this doesn't have to be defeat, but it sure as hell feels like it. That was in August. Four months on, is there still any hope of this not being an enduring defeat? Uh, no, not very much, because it is a complete strategic defeat for the West, whatever you say about the intentions involved originally in Afghanistan. And the West is complicit with what the, what is happening in Afghanistan, the catastrophe that is unfolding. They can't. Politicians want to turn away from it and put it all in the rearview mirror, but they can't. And in six months' time, world opinion will say, look, you're partly responsible for all of this. And the Chinese and the Russians are, as it were, testing the United States to see how weak the U.S. may be because of it. They're, they're trying to work out how much damage is done to President Biden and also to Britain and some of the other European powers. So although we'd like to put Afghanistan to the back of the agenda, we will not be able to. It is a, it's a defeat which will hang on us for some considerable time, I think. Karen von Hippel, the international politics of this looks messy. Joe Biden came to the world stage saying America is back, that he would strengthen ties with allies. Then he withdraws from Afghanistan based on putting US interests first. And some partners, including the UK, were very clear this wasn't what they wanted. Has this done lasting damage to Western and NATO unity? That's a good question. I mean, you know, to be fair to Biden, he had been signaling for many years that he did not think staying in Afghanistan was a good idea. Um, and so it shouldn't have been a surprise. He announced it. They did consult. The allies didn't like what they heard. So perhaps the allies felt like they weren't listened to, but they were consulted with. Um, and his motivation was, you know, we haven't made any progress here. We've been here for a very long time. Uh, and we need to focus on the bigger challenges, China, Russia, et cetera. This is where China misreads the U.S. intentions because, of course, China says, oh, the U.S. cut and run, and so they would do the same potentially to Taiwan. It's precisely the opposite that Biden would argue we are pulling out of Afghanistan to focus on China. But, of course, it's done huge damage. The way it was done, it was a disaster. And as Kate was saying, you know, the country's in dire states, and it's just that definitely hangs on the Americans. Uh, Michael Clark, does the chaotic end to 20 years in Afghanistan also mark an end to the kind of Western military interventions with boots on the ground that we've seen regularly since the end of the Cold War? Uh, well, there's certainly no appetite to do that sort of thing again. And remember, the interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan came off the back of a series of smaller interventions around Europe and in other parts of the world that seemed to be relatively successful. And then they were transposed to much bigger scenarios where they just didn't work for all sorts of reasons that we've talked about many times. But remember, too, that the Western world is talking now about being persistently engaged uh, around the world because of the rise of Chinese and Russian influence that Western forces can't just sit at home and see the influence and the, the rules of the international system being constrained by Russia and China. So although we won't see these sorts of interventions again, at least at the political level, the Western powers feel that they have to be prepared to use their militaries or to have their militaries operate around the world. So we will see further types of involvement, but not this sort of nation-building intervention, because that's now got a very bad reputation. I, I would slightly disagree with Mike. I think that memories are not very long about interventions, and we tend to go through periods when we intervene. It doesn't go well, whether it's Vietnam or Somalia or Afghanistan and Iraq. But then in the years between those interventions, we forget, we get overly 
distraught about refugee crisis, humanitarian crises, and we tend to use force to resolve those conflicts. Now, Biden has also said we need to intervene diplomatically going forward. We need to use fewer troops and more diplomats, which of course everybody believes in. The issue is, has the world changed so significantly that diplomacy on its own may not work? Uh, Kate Clark, the UN is warning of an avalanche of hunger and destitution for Afghans. Is there any sign that countries like the UK and the US who don't want to legitimise the Taliban as a government or risk funding them are finding a way to help? They are committing to humanitarian aid, which by its nature is non-political. But the scale of the problems mean that humanitarian aid is a drop in the ocean. Afghanistan was a country where 40% of the economy came from overseas support, either civilian aid or military support. And you cannot replicate that with humanitarian aid. That's one problem. The other problem is that the sanctions mean that the banking system is paralysed. You've got people who can't get their savings out. You've got people who are not being paid salaries in Afghanistan. So along with a really horrible drought from, from the last two years, which had already seen poverty rising in rural areas, you're now seeing the urban areas suffering from, from the same level of poverty. And it, it is catastrophic. So, Kate, what state do you think Afghanistan will be in a year from now? Very, very poor. There'll be a lot of um, people dying over this winter, this lean winter. Um, and everyone who's trying to get out, who, who can get out, is looking for ways to get out. It is, I, I, I think Europe, despite the uh, difficulties of, get, of Afghans getting through Iran and Turkey, Europe should be expecting many more Afghans trying to get into its, its, its borders, which for many countries, of course, is something that they really don't want. Kate Clark, thank you. Mike and Karen, stay with us. In March, the UK's armed forces got a big shake-up, as they now do roughly every five years. The Integrated Review and its Defence Command paper promised the forces a new high-tech future. But as James Hurst explained at the time, to pay for the new technology, old hardware will be swiftly retired and the army shrunk. We'll call the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace. After a year in the making, this was the Defence Secretary's moment to reveal the new blueprint for the armed forces for decades ahead. It marks a shift from mass mobilisation to information age speed. There is a new higher technology future here, but there is also some pain. Much of it lands on the army. It loses a third of its tanks and all of its warrior armoured fighting vehicles, replaced by Ajax and non-fighting boxer armoured vehicles. And there is a cut in people, reducing the target size of the army by almost 10,000 within five years. The army's increased deployability and technological advantage will mean that greater effect can be delivered by fewer people. The RAF's fleet of planes shrinks to deliver new ones more than a decade from now. Hercules and Tranche 1 typhoons will be retired. The planned Wedgetail surveillance fleet reduced from five to three. If there's a winner in this, it's the Royal Navy. It is promised more sailors, though no figure on that. The fleet of frigates and destroyers will eventually rise slightly from its current number of 19. But before then, older ships may retire before new ones arrive. Increased funding offers defence an exciting opportunity to turn our current forces into credible ones, 
modernising for the threat to the 2020s and beyond. There are growth areas for defence in all this. Space, cyber, artificial intelligence, all of those welcomed by the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy. But these new technologies may take years to come on stream. So this is a plan for cuts now with a promise of jam tomorrow. It's not just about numbers of people, tanks and computers, though. It is also about changes to thinking and working, particularly having more personnel working outside the UK with new hubs around the world. Lena Forces, says the command paper, are more nimble. There has been a different political tone to this defence review. It's acknowledged the failure of past defence reviews to deliver what was promised. The Defence Secretary asks that this one is judged on what it actually achieves. James Hurst reporting in March. Well, now the dust has settled and we've had time to look at the small print. Was this defence review good or bad news for the armed forces, Michael Clark? Uh, for some, yes. Um, I think, I mean, the army is being dismantled in effect um, and it's going to look like a 21st century version of the Victorian army where it's quite busy uh, in penny packets around the world as we're supporting a different strategy to a land-based strategy and what it will be supporting is a 21st, vention of, uh, 21st century version of a maritime strategy. I don't know if the government is fully aware of what it seems to have done, but it is, it is moving to a, a modern maritime strategy, which also involves space and cyber. And so the Navy and the RAF are fundamental to that strategy. And the army is the, is the sort of the filler in, the mortar in between the bricks. That's a pretty big change. And as we see this thing going forward, as we see the strategy unfold, in the next 10 years, it'll be interesting to see if we have fully absorbed all of the implications of that. And Karen, we, we know from previous defence reviews, the plan can unravel pretty quickly, but the Defence Secretary said this one would, for the first time in decades, match genuine money to credible ambitions. Your team at RUSI analysed the detail forensically. Does this review add up? Will it deliver? Uh, I mean, we, we have to hope so, and it's great that they added additional resources uh, for the first time in a very long time. At the same time, as Mike was saying, the threat landscape has expanded significantly, and forces are being asked to deal with old-fashioned threats all the way to a range of new threats that are changing all the time. And so you have to be quite agile in a situation when militaries need to plan for the next 10, 15 years. So it just gets very difficult on the procurement side in particular, but it doesn't mean that it can't be done. You just need to keep the focus and that's really always a challenge. And Karen, how's it gone down in Washington DC? In the lead up, we heard there was US concern about its biggest ally shrinking its military capabilities again. Yeah, I think the US is always concerned uh, every single time there are cuts in, in the armed forces, uh, but um, the US, still values the UK as an important partner, as we saw from this recent AUKUS agreement. So yeah, it's not ideal and expect more pushback uh, in the months and years to come. And Michael, Boris Johnson's words came back to haunt him all, on all of this. He'd promised in the 2019 election campaign, I quote, we will not be cutting our armed services in any form. We will be maintaining the size of our armed services. Does that mud stick or is it long since forgotten? It's forgotten in defence terms. I mean, no sensible person believes uh, campaign manifesto promises in any case, really. It matters on things that really grab the public's attention. So what the Conservatives have said about social care and about levelling up, those are the sort of things where breaking promises matters. It doesn't really count in defence terms because defence is usually just one day 
of an election campaign. Right, it's time for a Christmas party game of sorts. Uh, it's called Good Year, Bad Year. The rules are pretty simple. I name something, a country, a person, an organisation. Um, Michael, Karen, you tell me if they've had a good or bad year in just one sentence, I'm afraid. Um, Mike, you go first. The US. A good year, uh, because it's not President Trump. They are getting on top of COVID, and there's a sort of relief that the Biden administration is back to government by the grown-ups. We'll see how long that lasts. Karen, Joe Biden. Bad year in foreign policy, uh, a bit better in domestic policy. Mike, Russia. A good year for Russia. Energy prices have recovered, which matters to them. Afghanistan has been a humiliation for the West. That helps. Europe is in disarray. Belarus has not collapsed. It's saved. So good year tactically for President Putin. Karen, NATO. Let's just say better than under Trump and getting its act together, but hugely concerned about what may happen in Ukraine in the coming months. Mike, China. Uh, oh, bad year for China. Uh, there's been some pushback against the COVID crisis, which began in China. A lot of anti-China rhetoric and people are beginning to unite against the influence of China. So not a good year for China, by and large. Karen, Iran. Uh, I would say hard to tell, actually. In, I would say in, in between. I mean, they are pushing back very strongly on the U.S. for this deal, but they're under incredible pressure domestically and economically. So not a great year. Mike, Ben Wallace. Uh, oh, Ben Wallace, uh, quite a good year. He's not been reshuffled, still in his job. Afghanistan, the, the withdrawal went well for him. So he's trusted and he's a lot better than most of the alternatives that people could think of. Karen, the UK. I'd say Boris has had a bad year, but... In terms of boosters and vaccines, the UK has had a decent year and the economy hasn't collapsed, so I'm fairly optimistic. Any thoughts from either of you on who or which country in the world has had the very best or very worst year? Mike, you first. Oh, the very worst year has got to be Afghanistan. That's got to be the worst. It's, it's a catastrophe in every respect. Uh, best year, probably Australia, actually. Australia, New Zealand, good years. I'd say in, in, in many respects, Russia slash Putin, because he continues to punch way above his weight at the global level, even if at home he's facing a number of challenges economically and with the health of the population. He still has managed to interfere throughout the globe. Well, overall, it's been a pretty good year for the Royal Navy. We've already mentioned it came out of the Defence Review reasonably well. What really stands out, though, is the first British carrier strike group sailing for more than a decade. HMS Queen Elizabeth and her escort set off in May and got home just a few days ago. The voyage had some difficult moments, which we'll discuss in a moment. But first, a taste of life on board HMS Queen Elizabeth. Hannah King met some of the crew while the carrier was docked in Oman. It's like a, a floating city, to be honest. You just, Meet yeah. Able Rating William Augustine, a.k.a. Oggy. We're, we're going all around the world and, and everybody wanted to be dipped in on that. But of course, they only chose the best sailors to, <laughs> to do it. I'm, I'm joking. Oggy's 26 and from Grenada. His job is to sort out the ship's payroll and he's also a firefighter on board. All pretty important. We're actual firefighters where we would jump in. I would grab me boots, slip those on, me shirt my jacket sorry get my helmet on my comms is in that comes with the icy main group and we have eight minutes to get to that fire since hms queen elizabeth set sail in may she's traveled 40,806 nautical miles through 10 time zones that's the in the overhead up on the bridge we find christy just watch her make sure she continues to she's 25 a junior warfare officer and in charge of steering the most expensive warship the navy's ever built in for pitch in for roll in for shoals yeah it's um it's a lot of responsibility it is 
Certainly, sort of during the busier shipping shipping area, so uh, the Suez Canal Transit and the Straits of Malacca, you know, you've got um, numerous vessels out there, you know, not sure how they're going to react. So it's just sort of staying very alive as to, as to how they're going to manoeuvre around you. You know, being the size that we are, we can't really sort of manoeuvre at um, quick speed to avoid. So just sort of looking at that step ahead all the time. Have you any close misses, like little, shipping, little fishing vessels up ahead? No, absolutely not, and I hope that'll never be the case last time on watch anyway. As countries remained closed due to COVID, many of the shore stops originally planned for the deployment had to be cancelled. What was that like, to not be able to get it off? Oh, God. You know, when your mum put a piece of cake in front of you, and she told you, it's going to be yours, you know, but you just wait till I come back, and you're looking at the cake, and it's right there, and you can't touch it. It was... We're human beings, it was depressing, especially being alongside in Japan and you're looking at the landscape and it's right there and you've been hearing about Japan and anticipating the build-up and you just can't get off. But it's Covid things, it is what it is. Hey, uh, Shogun, right, everything's good? Yeah, okay. Oh, bless. Just do your thing. <laughs> we got uh, lasagna. Lasagna tonight, it's Italian night, is it? We've got Paddy, we call him, he's one of the better cooks. <laughs> How many eggs have we used on this deployment thus far? Uh, I think over two million eggs, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking vibes. Probably only one was off as well. <laughs> Everyone's getting excited about coming home for Christmas. I'll miss the morning watch. It's my favourite watch. Um, you sort of come up in the dark, you know, you've got f um, the first hour to climatise yourself and then you get to watch the sunrise and no matter where you are, it's different every, every morning. So I will miss that. That was Lieutenant Christy Jack talking to Hannah King. Well, almost 50,000 nautical miles covered through 10 different time zones, engagements with 40 nations. Uh, Karen von Hippel, the UK talks about projecting power by sailing the carrier, fighter jets and a fleet of warships around the world. Has this really done the UK good? Yeah, I think so. I think presence really matters. Uh, the UK needs to demonstrate that global Britain means something in reality, that the tilt to the Indo-Pacific is going to happen, that it will work closely with its allies. Of course, UK can't do this alone, but certainly uh, can work closely with allies. And no country at this stage can do things on their own to deal with some of these incredibly huge challenges. Michael Clark, sadly, the biggest headlines for the carrier were when an F-35 crashed into the sea on takeoff and the pilot safely ejected. Will that be what's remembered or will it be remembered as a successful deployment? Oh, no, I think it'll be recorded as a successful deployment. I mean, that particular accident, remember, nobody lost their lives. The aircraft was recovered. And it looks from what we could see from that little bit of video that uh, came out as if it was a catastrophic deck handling error that the the aircraft simply didn't have enough power as it got to the end of the ramp if that was the case if it was a, a terrible deck handling error you can be sure that that won't happen again but that's a matter of procedure that the the, the 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 whole battle group was designed to deal with these things so yes they lost an aircraft but they got the pilot back they got the aircraft back the whole thing was pretty successful and Karen, the other big headlines were actually for HMS Defender when it had broken away from the strike group for exercises in the Black Sea. Russia said it fired warning shots because the Royal Navy ship had strayed into its waters. The UK denied the accuracy of Russia's account. Then we had those classified documents found at a bus stop which showed the UK was at least half expecting something like this. Was there a winner from this scrap? You know, I don't attach too much significance when these kinds of errors happen. I and mean, people forget, I, I forgot until you just reminded me about the classified documents case. But I think what's more important is that countries have direct lines to each other to deconflict so that these types of things are not misread and can escalate into some sort of conflict.
Well, next year we'll see both the UK's aircraft carriers deploying around the world. Uh, very briefly, what other stories should we be keeping an eye on uh, for 2022, Karen? Well, definitely Russia potentially invading Ukraine, which could happen in the coming weeks. I think China potentially testing the US on Taiwan. I think China and Russia are both going to test the US after Afghanistan to see how resolute it will be in face of, uh, of, of these types of threats. Mike. Yes, uh, Ukraine and Taiwan will certainly be in the news. In addition to that, I think uh, the Balkans, uh, Bosnia may fall apart, and that will uh, take us back into the sort of 1990s scenario. Mali is going to be difficult. Ajax, the armoured vehicle, will remain on life support for the army. And don't forget, this time next year, this day next year, we'll be looking forward to the third and fourth place playoff followed by the final of the World Cup in Qatar, literally as we speak this time next year. There'll be a lot of security issues around it, a lot of threats of terrorism, a lot of instability probably. So if we all get to the end of the World Cup this time next year, and it looks like any other World Cup, I think there'll be a great sigh of relief. Well, we'll look ahead at what to expect in 2022 when we return in the first week of January. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Dr. Karen von Hippel, and to all of our guests over the last 12 months. But we couldn't review 2021 without also remembering our friend and colleague, Christopher Lee, who died in February. He was the heart of SIPREP across three decades, explaining defence and guiding us through world affairs. And so SIPREP's final words of 2021 belong to Christopher. Goodbye. So that's it for this week. Join us here on next week, SITREP, Thursday, 4 o'clock UK time. If you can, listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. But for me now, Christopher Lee, I'm going. Bye-bye. And guess what? Mary's in the hut. Oh.